All right, it is a joy to be here with you tonight. Go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're continuing our study there in this wonderful book, looking at this model church, this growing church. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 today, and uh, it's beautiful how the Lord works, that we're going to see another picture of joy. Uh, we talked this morning about joy, about Christ, about our, our triune God being our ultimate source of joy. Today, we're going to look at how Paul found joy as Christ did his work in and through his church. I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in chapter 2, verse 17. This is the beginning of this narrative that Paul goes into and which he is expressing his desire to see the church. And then after that, we will pray. So follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having, having been taken away from you for a short, short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain." But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you, Lord. You are our stronghold, you are our shield, you are our salvation, and our soul waits for you, Lord. And today we see the blessed results of a church that waits on you. Lord, may we see this passage, may we learn and take and glean from this passage the beautiful truths that are outlined here. May this church be a growing church, a model church. May we as believers Continue in our faith as we wait upon you. Bless this time now through your Holy Spirit. with the word do its work now? In Christ's name, amen. The title of our lesson tonight is Good News 
and sweet results. Angie was sitting patiently, ever so patiently, waiting in the doctor's office. Chris, her husband, was positioned to the right of her, holding her hand. He was gently shaking his leg, which was a sign that his nerves were in full force. She herself felt the the butterflies fluttering in her stomach. She was having difficulty to, to keep her mind focused on the goodness of God and the promises of his word. Both of their minds kept wanting to, to drift to the what ifs. What if this report comes back negative? What if it comes back bad? What, what would our, our lives look like? You see, only a month ago, the, the Lord had thrown a, a knuckleball, a wrench into their lives. On, uh, as Angie was going in for one of her yearly routine checkups, the, the physician had noticed a cause of concern. And so she, he had asked Angie to come back a week later for a biopsy. And so here they, they were, they did that procedure. And now two excruciating long weeks afterwards, the report had come back. And so here they were waiting And after what felt like eternity, Angie's physician opened the door, sat down on his chair, and looked at them both and said, I have good news for y'all today. All is clear. Maybe you've been in a similar kind of situation in your own life. If so, you you know intimately the the comfort, the, the joy, the thanksgiving that you render up to God for that good news. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've been in a different unsettling circumstance in which you were wondering, did I pass that final? Uh, Am I going to get this job? Uh, Is she going to say yes to my proposal? Is that client going to take the deal? All of us know the exhilaration and relief as we've been waiting and waiting and finally the report comes back, all is good. Right? Good news produces sweet results. Our passage today is an identical scenario in the life of the Apostle Paul and his missionary team. And they were waiting, it would seem, on the edge of their seats as they were waiting for this report to come back from Timothy. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. We've already seeing the, the product of biblical ministry there, uh, they went forward and they preached the gospel. And by the grace of God, the gospel had taken off and had flourished in this, uh, this city of Thessalonica. They gave thanks to the word of God that you did not receive it as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which performed its work in you. The spirit of God had birthed new disciples. A church was birthed, but not only did they imitate faith in Christ. We see in chapter 2, verse 14, they also became imitators of Christ in persecution. After a few weeks, possibly even a couple of months, a faithful ministry persecution had sprung up and this fledgling church came under assault. We see in verse 17 that it caused Paul and his team to leave. Verse 17, but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short while they had been separated, they had been taken away from this church, which had inhibited them from 
helping this seedling church endure the blowing tempest that was the persecution of their fellow countrymen. This is the distress that Paul is in. This is the distress that the team finds themselves in. You see, they had a lingering questions of what ifs in their own lives, in their own ministry, and in the church in Thessalonica. What Was the church still abounding in faith? Had the church stood fast in allegiance to their newly professed Lord? How was their perception of Paul? How how was their perception of Paul's team? Did they still cherish him as a servant of Christ? Did they look back upon his visit with gladness? What had become of their love for Christ? What had become of their love for one another? And had the tempter prevailed, causing all of the missionary labor to end in vain. This was Paul's concern. This was the preoccupation of his soul. And therefore, it's because of this great desire, this deep concern for this precious flock, that Paul's determined. He's like, I got to go back there. I got to check out and see how they're doing. And so in, chapter, uh, in, in verse 17, he says we We've tried, excuse me, verse 18, we, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. I continue to, to keep trying down this road, but Satan hindered us. He set up these obstructions, these impediments, these roadblocks, preventing Paul, preventing his team from coming back and reaching the church. And so they had to wait. And they had to wait. And they had to wait. I didn't know what was going on. And finally, they just can't take it anymore. Chapter 3, verse 1. When we could endure it no longer. There, this unbearable turmoil that was roiling within them, they were not able to endure it any longer. So they set about a solution, which we looked at last time, which was before Thanksgiving and before all that wonderful food we had last couple of weeks ago. We saw last time that they had determined a solution. They had found a a detour around, it would seem, by sending Timothy. We see in verse 2, they had sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you and to encourage you as to the faith. Timothy was to travel back. He was to assess the situation. He was to encourage uh, encourage them in the faith, strengthen them in the faith. And then he was to come back to Paul and report what was going on. And scholars tell us that between verse 5 and verse 6, at least a month has passed by, if not longer. So then we have a month of waiting, of waiting, of waiting. And Paul waiting in agony, Paul praying in earnest. For one month, there was only silence. What news would Timothy bring? That brings us to our passage today. A beautiful, joyous, wonderful passage. In fact, it is the heart of this letter. The, the, this letter uh, uh, builds upon this encouraging report. You see, the time is over. Timothy has returned. He is now given his report. And it's this. All is clear. The church is standing firm. The verses which follow then capture, they capture for us the sweet results which flow from the good news when believers stand firm in the faith. 
As we go forward in this passage, there's two scenes in which this narrative break down. The first is the good news. The, the good news in verse 6. It's the cause. It's the reason for the results. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. But now, uh, Tim, uh, Paul says a, a striking contrast between what was previously and how he was previously feeling and doing to, to how he's doing now, right? Earlier, he was fearful for their souls. He was concerned. He was anxious about how they were doing. And, and by the way, this is no small, minor inconvenience for the Apostle Paul. He, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, that this is the daily pressure of concern that, that he has, almost the, uh, the pinnacle of his, uh, his sufferings, if you would, and his life and ministry was this, that he was concerned about the churches and how they were doing in the gospel. So this was difficult for Paul to bear. He was inwardly, in, as we'll see, outwardly suffering as he thought about how the church was doing back there, back there in Thessalonica. But now, but now, all has been relieved. The waiting is over. Timothy has returned, and like hot news fresh off the press, he has delivered the report Paul has been anticipating. Literally, Paul says, and he has brought us good news. You hear the word good news, immediately your ears probably start perking up here, it's the same word, euangelizo, which is often used throughout the New Testament for the preaching or the heralding of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that, that you, uh, a sinner, condemned, entrapped in the domain of darkness with the, uh, the holy wrath of God bearing down on you, have been saved, you've been delivered, you've been rescued from the city of destruction. How? Well, it's not by flesh and blood. It's not by the will of man. It's not by our works, but through Christ, through the sacrificial death of the one who came into the world to become like one of us. You see, Jesus was not some AI. It was not artificial intelligence. We hear that all over out there, right? He's not artificial intelligence. No, he was made like us in every way. He fully partook of flesh and blood. Hebrews 2 tells us so that he might become our merciful and faithful high priest to offer himself as a perfect spotless lamb without blemish or sin. To make propitiation for the sins of our, uh, for our sins. Right? Jesus' blood on the cross quieted the storm of God's wrath. As even Jesus' words quieted the storm on the sea of Galilee. Here is my blood shed for my people, Father. May your wrath be appeased on my account. And so if you would repent and believe in Christ as your Savior, receiving him as the greatest treasure of your soul, finding in him to be the ultimate source of your joy, he will transfer you to the celestial city, the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the good news that Paul preached. That's the good news of the gospel. Which, by the way, if anyone in here is not a follower of Christ, that is the good news for you this evening. 
And so Paul is, he doesn't just throw the word gospel around as if it's just something that he takes lightly. No, he uses a specific word here to convey that this is the best news that he could hear. This is great news. How marvelous was this report? How truly good was this report? Timothy, you have brought me good news. Now, what was it? Why, why was this news so good? What was it about this news that brought Paul to his knees in this way? Well, there's three reasons here. There's the content of this good news. There's three reasons. First is that the church persevered in faith. Here's why this news is good. It's because the church persevered in faith. Look at verse 6. It says, Timothy has come to us. He's brought to us good news of your faith. Right, the believer's faith, the church's faith, standing firm, that was Paul's key, uh, key concern in verses 1 through 5. Right, it had only been a few weeks since these believers had turned from idols to turn to the living God. They were, they were newborns in the faith. They were flesh, uh, freshly planted seedlings in the soil. They were newborn ewes and following their heavenly shepherd. And, and here comes this wolf desiring to tear them apart with his fangs of persecution. Or, uh, and so here's Paul. He, he's concerned. Would they persevere? Or would they end up just like the seed that's scattered on the rock and this comes up immediately? It looks like in every way they're believers, they're joyful. But then the sun comes out, scorches it, the heat, the pressure, the suffering comes, and then they fall away. Where are they going to end up? Timothy says, Paul, your fears, let them be allayed. Find comfort knowing that the church has persevered in faith. You can even look at chapter 1, verse 3. We see that they worked hard in faith. Paul gives thanks that this was a church working hard. In faith, in chapter 1, verse 6, they received and persevered in the word despite much tribulation. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, their faith, their faith resounded forth. It's not just that they had faith. It was a resounding. It was a, a faith worthy of imitation as it became an example to all the suffering believers throughout Macedonia, Achaia, and the whole world. And then chapter 1, verse 10, it says their faith rested in the hope of a Savior coming to them again from heaven. They demonstrated remarkable faith. One commentator states this, quote, The good news is that the Thessalonian church is not some ground zero that Timothy gazed on in horror, but a thriving body of believers. You see, Timothy did not come back and find spiritual carcasses scattered about after a bomb of persecution has hit. No, Timothy came back and he found a thriving body of believers. They were a church persevering in faith. And that is good news. Second, the church abounded in love. The church abounded in love. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy has come. He's brought to us good news of your love, of your love. Instead of returning and finding a group of hardened, cynical, embittered believers, angry over their persecution, taking it out on one another, Timothy returned instead to find a church that had knitted itself in love. 
Instead of their trials becoming this wedge that, that kind of pushed them apart from each other, their trials had actually become like a clamp which had then squeezed them together. We see that again in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says that they, they labored in love. Look at chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. He says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love, and, to love one another. For indeed you practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This was a church that loved one of another. So these guys were doing well, as one commentator observes, quote, rather than bringing bad news that the Thessalonians' faith had wavered, Timothy brought good news that their faith was bearing fruit in love. Man, good news. The church abounded in love. Third, we see that the church maintained their loyalty. The church maintain their loyalty. When I say loyalty, I don't mean necessarily to Christ. Of course, they were loyal to Christ, but rather their loyalty to Paul and the missionary team. They had maintained their fidelity to them. Look at verse 6. He says, Timothy has come back. He has brought to us good news of this, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Now imagine that you are bearing witness, you're, you're proclaiming the gospel to a coworker, right? And after intense conversations, hours of praying for them, talking, going through Bible studies and different things, the Lord opens up their heart to believe upon Christ in faith. They're saved. And now this guy is zealous for the Lord. He is now turning to all of his coworkers and telling them about Christ. However, word about this is getting out. Some are kind of getting upset about this. They begin slandering these men. Uh, they go to the boss. They report them. They say, these guys are doing harm within our, within our company. And so a short time later, the boss comes in, and he fires both of them. They're both now without a job. This man, he, he's lost his job, this new believer. He, he's lost his way of providing for this struggling family. And, and at that point, you might wonder, man, is this guy, is he still going to, going to embrace me? I mean, I kind of maybe just ruined his life in a sense and that now he has without a job and without a, a way to provide for his family. And so now, imagine the joy as you're concerned about that when the next week you come to church, you see this man and immediately he runs to you and he throws his arms around you and he embraces you. And he says, I love you, brother, right? No matter the suffering, no matter that I lost my job, Christ is worthy. I long to have fellowship with you. Thank you for sharing with me the good news of Christ, right? Talk about comfort. That's what's going on here in this scenario for the Apostle Paul. He has, in a sense, suddenly appeared in the lives of these Thessalonian believers, and he's turned everything upside down. He has caused uh, now his countrymen to, to turn on them and persecute them. So there was concern for the Apostle Paul. Would they remain loyal to them? Would they still show him affection and love and care for him, for the team? Would they still embrace them? Would they still welcome them back to their church? Or did they hold a, a bitter spirit towards them? You're the reason why our life is so hard. You're the reason why... 
we're going through this mess. You, you, left behind, you left us behind to deal with this on our own. You know, we don't want anything. We don't want anything about you. We don't want you here, Paul. We don't want your team here. And so the comfort, the joy, the thanksgiving that Paul gets as he gets this report. And Timothy says, Paul, they still think kindly about you. They think well of you. They think affectionately of you. And, and notice what he says here. It's not just sometimes they think like this. They always, always think kindly of you. Now, there's no bitterness here. There's no hardness of heart over what's happened. There's no animosity. There's no harboring of, of anger. Now, they remain committed to Paul and the ministry of the gospel. They love these guys. They want them to come back to them and see them again at the church. And notice how they express their affection and loyalty. He says they long. They long to see us just as we also long to see them. That participle, their longing, it refers to a strong desire for something. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, it uses it to speak of the Christian who longs for, to be out of this tent of this body and to be with Christ in glory, to, to put off the old, to put on glory. This longing, we yearn for that as Christians. It's also the same word used in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, in which we are like newborn babes to, to long for the spiritual milk of the word. Here, these believers are longing to be with Paul. They have a strong desire to see them again. You talk about sweet music to a pastor's ear, right? To hear that his people long to see him and be with him. I mean, what comfort must that have brought this team? So we have faith, love, and loyalty this was the response of the Thessalonian church in the face of persecution. And as far as reports go, I don't think you get any better than that, right? Truly, this was good news. Now, having received this good, good news, what did it produce in the lives of the Pauline team? That brings us to the second scene there, is which Paul expresses the sweet results. The sweet results in verses 7 through 10. And Paul lists here four sweet results that this good news produced in the lives of the Pauline team. First, it resulted in rejuvenating comfort. Rejuvenating comfort. Verse 7 through 8. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For this reason, that points us back. Here's the reason for our comfort. It's because of this good news, this report of what Timothy has brought back, that in the midst of your distress, in the midst of your affliction, church, you persevered in faith. And so in turn, in our distress, and in our affliction, we can be comforted. And the word there for comfort, it can be rendered comfort, or it could be rendered encourage. Look at verse, uh, chapter two, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter three, verse two. That's how it's translated there. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you or comfort you as to your faith. And so here, Paul sent out Timothy to comfort the church. And now Timothy has come back and Paul is comforted. We, we see a reverse irony here. 
right? It's actually the Thessalonians now who are the ones encouraging and comforting the Pauline team. I mean, that's how the faith works, right? I remember a couple years ago when I was serving with a youth group, we go at this time Christmas caroling. And we love to go out and to, to sing carols with the, with the kids and encourage the body of Christ. And there was one specific uh, believer that we went to to encourage. This man had recently lost his wife and he was then dealing with cancer. And we're like, oh, let's go to this man. Let's, let's encourage our brother. Let's, let's build him up in the faith. And we get there. This man just is so faithful and steadfast in Christ. And he begins sharing the gospel with us. And he begins telling us about his faith and he will not turn from the Lord and that, how these kids now need to, need to follow Christ. And I tell you what, we came to encourage him. We all left encouraged ourselves. That's how the faith works. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, that he went to impart to them a spiritual gift so that he could encourage them. But what happened And so to to encourage them, and and then what happened, he said, is that he too would be encouraged by their faith. Each one, mutual encouragement, each one encouraging each other in the faith. So that's what Paul says here. They were comforted. And notice the context, the context of their comfort. He says we were comforted, not not just because, you know, we were going through uh, an easy time. No, but it was in all our distress and affliction, these two words are close synonyms here. Uh, they're used together to, to speak of an intense hardship. Uh, distress speaks of a, a state of trouble, calamity, or extreme pressure. Affliction is oppression or tribulation. This is an intense time. This was a, a hardship that they were going through. And the question arises, well, what is Paul referring to here when he uses this, these terms? Well, on the one hand... It refers to the external persecution, the external afflictions going on, uh, that he was in Philippi, beaten, he was in Thessalonica and and persecuted and driven out. He went down to Berea, and then he went down to Athens. He was mocked and reviled. And these are the afflictions he's talking about. On one hand, he says, even in the midst of all that, to know that you, church, are standing firm comforts me, even as all this around me is going on. But I think there's more to it than that. It also speaks, on the other hand, to, our in, to an inward turmoil, inward uh, suffering as he was waiting for their report. Uh, qu- turn quickly over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see a similar scenario going on. There Paul is waiting for another report. Uh, he, he's waiting for the report from Titus, in which Titus, as you know, the, the background, the Corinthian church, they're not like the Thessalonian church, right? The Thessalonian church would have got good things in their stocking. The Corinthian church would have got coal in their stocking. They're just being very naughty. Here is Paul, and so what he does, he comes to the church. He's like, guys, all this stuff's going on. He confronts the church. Things implode. He leaves. He sends a severe letter back with Titus, and now he's waiting. What's going on in this church? What's happening? Are they going to repent? Are they going to turn back? Are they going to turn from these false, false teachers? And so... Paul's waiting. And then notice what Paul says in verse 4. Very similar language. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh, is, our flesh had no rest. But notice this. We were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. Right? Paul was inwardly 
afflicted for this church as he waited to know what was going on with the Corinthian church. And then we see that Titus brings his report, and there's a beautiful scene there as Paul shows his, uh, expresses his comfort. Turning back to 1 Thessalonians 3, that's the same thing we're getting here. There's these outward afflictions, and these are, there are these inward afflictions going on in Paul's life. And it's in the midst of that that he receives this report, and the faithful response of the believers bring him much joy. He says in verse 7, that we were comforted about you. How? Through your faith, right? Faith is the channel through which God dispenses his comforting grace. He comforts them through their faith. But, but notice I, I didn't just say comfort. It's a rejuvenating comfort. Verse 8, he says, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. The word for there, it doesn't explain so much why they were comforted, but more so of how. It describes how they received comfort. In a sense, not knowing how the church faced, uh, how the church feared, uh, excuse me, how the church fared, was the agony of death, it would seem for Paul. It seemed to him unbearable. We saw that in chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5. And, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we kind of see a picture, an illustration of that, where Paul says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, he says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. There Paul says that his concerns had hindered him. The inward turmoil, the outward affliction had so become a heavy burden on them that though the door of the gospel had opened, had flung open in there in Troas, they couldn't take advantage of it because they were too concerned for the church. The same thing is happening and is occurring here for the Apostle Paul. The thought of the Thessalonians not standing firm in faith was like this heavy anvil that was pressing down upon his shoulders. But now, now the good news has come and their comfort had, had given them new life. He says, for now we really live. Word therefore live, it, it could mean freedom from a burden, or removal of an anxiety. It speaks of the rejuvenation one gets after being uh, distressed. Robert Thomas explains like this, quote, to know that the Thessalonians continue standing firm in the Lord, unmoved by trials and unshaken by detractors, is enough to stimulate, to stimulate the Apostle Paul to renewed activity. And you know exactly the, the feeling uh, of what Paul's talking of here, right? When, when you're waiting for that significant report to come back in, whatever it may be, you're going about your life, but man, things are difficult. Your mind is, can be all over the place. It feels like there's this, this pressure upon your, your shoulders, this tension that's going on. Uh, you find yourself becoming restless. Often uh, you, you start even maybe slacking in, in work or, or family life starts getting hard and things start slipping a little bit, but and oh, you take the deep breath when the good news comes back and all is okay. Everything that maybe you had feared or worried about is free, it's gone, it's done. It's now as if you have been raised to life again. You have been rejuvenated, you have been renewed, you have been stimulated to continue and to press on in your endeavors. That's what is happening here with the Apostle Paul. 
But notice how Paul explains it here. Um, he, he doesn't say that now we really live because you're standing firm in the Lord. He puts it in the form of a question. At church, we will be rejuvenated if you stand firm in the Lord. Why did Paul, why did he phrase it like that? Why did he say it like that, Paul? The, the grammatical construction of this phrase is telling on Paul's part. Now, there's no doubt, right? There's no doubt in his mind that the church is standing firm. There's no question about that. Timothy has given a good report. Nevertheless, he is giving this in this way in order to, to, to nudge the church, to, to nudge the church to keep going. Keep going, church. You're standing, you're standing firm, but, but he, he phrases it like this, if you are standing firm, to, to motivate the church to keep on standing firm. Hey, guys, you're standing firm here, and the result will be that we will too, if you don't retreat in the face of the enemy. If you will stand firm, then we will stand firm also. So here is the first result. This rejuvenating comfort, Paul and his team are almost raised to life. They're renewed, they're ready to continue to go on in ministry. We see a second sweet result. The good news results in inexpressible things. Inexpressible things. Paul says in verse 9, For what things can we render to God for you? Rather than just stating just point blank, hey guys, we are, you know, we're thankful for you. No, rather, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He's trying to convey the, the, the vividity, I don't know if that's the word, vividness of his emotion. He is astounded. He is inexpressible in his thinks. He, he says here, we're lost for words, guys. We can't even begin to find the vocabulary here to, to give thanks to God on your behalf. Now, often we use that language as we think of salvation. We think of the, the Lord and what he has done in his kindness and grace to us. Psalm 116, verse 12 says this, what, uh, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Right, Lord, you would pardon me? Lord, you would heal all my diseases? Lord, you would redeem my life from the pit? Lord, you would crown me with steadfast love and mercy? Lord, you would satisfy me with with good things, so my youth is renewed like the eagles. Lord, are you kidding me? I don't even have words to say thanks to you, Lord. I am just an unworthy sinner. How often do we, we use those words? Well, that's what Paul's doing here, but, but not in relation to his salvation, but in relation to how these believers are standing firm in Christ. Church, I don't even have enough words to say thank you for how you are faithfully following the Lord. But notice who Paul gives his thanks to. He's not saying they give thanks on your, because of you, or, or to you, but rather to give thanks to God. What thanks can we render to God? Right? Paul is properly acknowledging who gets the credit here. Right? The glory belongs to God. It is God who worked out this faith in you. It is God who sustained you. It is God who helped you to persevere. It is God who preserved you. And because of that, I give thanks. I give thanks to him. To God be inexpressible thanks. Third, we see overflowing joy. 
This good news resulted in overflowing joy. Verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Right? In return. He's linking the thanksgiving and he's linking it with the joy. Thanksgiving was the outward expression of the internal joy that this good news had produced in their hearts. And notice how he says it. He says, with all the joy with which we rejoice. Paul could not be get, he could not get any more descriptive. He could not have picked a, a more descriptive phrase to explain the joy that he had deep down in his heart. Right? They're bursting with joy. They're overwhelmed with joy. They're overflowing with joy. They cannot contain it. They cannot keep it. They keep it in. They must exult in God for this faithful church. That's a stark contrast, right, to, to how Paul was just explaining their emotional state a few verses earlier. So we can try to imagine the scene here, right? Paul, his friends, are toiling away in Corinth. They're trying to faithfully preach the gospel down there, but all the while their minds are still back on what's going on in Thessalonia. Uh, all, they're painfully aware of what's happening back there. There's distress, there's affliction. And then the good news comes. The church is standing firm. And immediately, uh, what we see here is there's this flood, this wave of emotion that comes upon them. They're rejuvenated with a, a deep sense of comfort. They're, but along with that comfort, there comes this overflow. This overflow of joy that God would sustain this church. And then that is expressed in, in thanksgiving to God. That is the, the picture, that's the scene that what we see here in these sweet results. But fourthly, there's a fourth sweet result, and that's earnest prayer, verse 10. Earnest prayer, as he says in verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Right, this report, this good news, it didn't just end up in warm feelings. No, it, it led the team to pray even more earnestly for this church. And notice here prayer's frequency. Prayer's frequency, he says, as we night and day keep praying for you. All right, Paul doesn't mean literally they prayed all night and all day. No, it's a figure of speech to say how often they were praying for this church. They continued time after time again to, to run to the throne of grace and to, to cast up their prayers to God on behalf of these believers. They prayed night and day. Notice also prayers fervency. Prayers fervency. Not only were they frequently coming to the throne of grace, but they were fervent when they did it. It says, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly. The word there for pray, it's not the, the normal term. It's not the generic term for prayer. Paul employs a rarer and, and stronger verb, which expresses what their prayers were like. They, they pleaded to God. They, they beseeched the Lord. They implored God for the sake of this church. And then to, to make matters even more intense, as if Paul could 
continue in that route. He describes their times of, intercess- of intercession as this. He says, for, we keep, for as night and day we keep praying most earnestly. Most earnestly. The word earnestly is, is one word in the Greek that's smushed together. And it serves as the highest form of comparison. The, the highest form of comparison that could be expressed in Paul's language at the time. Their prayers were so intense, Paul says they were beyond measure. That's the picture that we get here. Right? The, this report comes in, and, and there's comfort, there's joy, and there's thanksgiving. But not only that, this report sparks this renewed dedication to pray on behalf of this church. And not just prayer, but earnest prayer as Paul and his team continued to cry out to God for this church. They longed to pray for these believers. But what were they praying? As they're praying, what is prayer's focus here? What was the focus of their prayers? Well, it's kind of twofold. He says, first, we pray so that we may see your face. Right? They longed to be with these believers because they loved him. So they were praying that they could come and see them again. But not just to see them, but so that they may complete what is lacking in their faith. All right, the Thessalonians were a model church, but they were by no means a perfect church. All right, they still had room to grow. There was much work still to be done in discipling this young church. Therefore, Paul longed to be back with them so that he may complete what is lacking. Where complete, it doesn't mean to, to fix what's out of order or dis- uh, to repair what has gone disarray. No, th- this is not the idea being conveyed here. Rather, in context, the, the term means to complete, as in to complete the training of a, of a, of a disciple. This church was a, a growing church that still needed a spiritual tutor to, to help them grow and mature in the faith. And so that's what Paul was praying for frequently and fervently. We got to get back there. So we can continue equipping the saints for the work of ministry. He says that what is lacking, it's a, in the Greek it's plural. It conveys that there were several areas where the, the, church, was, uh, where the church was lacking, where they could ex- excel still more. And as we continue on through this letter, it, it, most likely those are the exact areas that Paul has in mind as he pins chapters 4 and chapter 5. It's this, this area that he will deal with. So while he prays for them, he can't be with them yet. He is going to write to them in order to begin that process of completing where they still needed to excel. So what we've seen here is that Paul has gone from sorrow to comfort. He's gone from pain to joy, from fear to thanksgiving. The good news of Timothy's report has produced sweet results in the lives of Paul and his team. That brings us then to takeaways for us. All right, as we, we read through this and we hear how this has impacted the life of the Thessalonians and how this has impacted the life of Paul and his team, how should this impact us? Well, let's begin first to think of how it should impact us as a church. Let us imitate this model church. Let us imitate this model church. 
may we respond as a church with the same perseverance of faith, the same abundance of love, the same loyalty to Christ and to the gospel and to the under-shepherds that he has placed here in this church, may we imitate how this church responded in persecution so that when we as a church suffer, we too would stand firm. Also, as a church, let us grow in the areas where we lack. Let's grow in the areas where we lack. Right? I praise God for this church. It is a mature church in many ways, and yet by no means are we a perfect church. We still have areas where we lack and where we need to be equipped, where we need to be completed, where we need to grow. May we continue as a church to grow just like the Thessalonians needed to grow. But shifting now to how this, how the takeaway is for us as a believer I'm going to ask a few questions, and I pray they're they're heart-piercing questions for you to to write down and and to go home with and to think about. They're challenging questions. Is this, do I have the same concern for other believers as expressed here? Do you have the same heart-wrenching inward turmoil that Paul and his team had as he thought about these believers and their suffering and what was going on in their lives Do you have that same concern for the other brothers and sisters here in this room? As you think about uh, about Joe over here and and what he's going through, are you concerned for that brother? As you think about Sally over here and what she's going through, are you concerned for that sister? Are you distressed when you hear of others suffering or walking in sin? Or are you cold? No real concern for how other brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. This passage gives us a challenging example of what godly concern looks like for one another. But with that concern, ask yourself this, do I earnestly pray for the church? Do I earnestly pray for the individual believers within the church to grow where they are lacking in faith? With Paul's concern led to prayer. You concern for the believers here, and so that you pray for them. So that you pray for our church frequently, lifting up Countryside Bible Church to the throne of heaven. Do you pray fervently to see God at work here in this church to equip us, to complete us, to mature us? And is the focus of your prayers on that very topic, that of seeing this church grow spiritually? Do I earnestly pray for the church? Next question is, do I find joy? Do I find joy and express thanksgiving in hearing other believers persevere in faith? Right, when, when you go to Sunday school and, and you hear um, in Sunday school that Susie is still standing strong, though her family is maligning her for her faith, do, do you rejoice? Praise God that Susie is standing, standing strong. Lord, thank you for working out faith in her life. Or when you go to your home fellowship and Ben tells you that he's just lost his job, but, but he's going to continue to trust in the sovereignty of God. He's going to continue to trust that God is on his throne. He's going to work out all of these purposes. 
You rejoice. Thank you, Lord, that Ben is standing firm in the faith. And we receive reports from our missionaries that despite governmental crackdowns, they're not going to stop preaching the gospel. They're going to continue to go out faithfully proclaiming Christ. When you hear that, does it produce in you this overflowing joy that then turns to thanksgiving? I love what the Apostle John says in 3 John 4. He says this, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Right? You want something to stimulate your heart, just look around this room and rejoice as you see these brothers and sisters standing firm, walking in the truth. Next question, do I long? Do I long to be with the people of God? All right, we talk all the time about longing for the spiritual milk of the word. But do you long to be with God's people or you go weary of, of going to fellowship with other believers? We see both here, Paul and his team and this church long to see each other and to be with each other. May we too long and never go weary of coming together to be God's people and to give him glory. Lastly, do I consider... Do I consider how my faithfulness, my spiritual faithfulness, will impact other believers? Right? Often we think about the ramifications of, of sin. And rightly, we think of how damaging, man, if I commit that sin, how damaging it's going to be to my testimony, how damaging it's going to be to the church and to other believers, those close to us. And that's rightly so. But do we put it on the, the flip side and think, well, if I remain faithful here, Lord, what kind of sweet results will that, will that produce in the lives of my brothers and sisters? As I'm standing firm in the Lord, and as they see my life and testimony, how will that give them encouragement? How will that comfort them? How will that uh, uh, give them joy and thanksgiving? And so then in the face of our trials, let's ask ourselves, how will my faithfulness encourage the lives of the believers around me? This is exactly what the Thessalonian church did. They persevered because of their faithfulness. It produced sweet results, a reverberating effect to Paul, his team, and even throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you are the faithful God you're the one who gives us strength to persevere, strength to endure, the strength to stand firm. It's not in our own doing, Lord. You are the one that work in and through us to work out your good, perfect, and pleasing will. God, help us as a church to continue to endure, continue to, to imitate godly faith. And when we have a church that continues to grow and perseveres and stands firm, both collectively and individually, and Lord, let us be a church that loves each other, that finds joy in each other, that, that overflows in thanksgiving for each other, just like we see here between the relationship of Paul and the Thessalonians. God, we give you the glory for this passage, and may we learn and may we be instructed from the truths that it contains. To you be the glory. Amen.